This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has a three-part mission to protect investors, maintain fair, orderly, and efficient markets, and facilitate capital formation. We hear a lot about the first part in speeches by SEC chairs, commissioners, and division directors, and on topics ranging from the duty financial advisors owe investors to the types of disclosures public companies are expected to make, and the SEC's efforts to enhance investor protection in the digital age by policing the crypto markets and new trading platforms and applications. In fact, we've joked before on the podcast about how, quote, protecting retail investors, end quote, has become something of a catchphrase at the SEC, at least for the Division of Enforcement, that transcends enforcement directors and chairs alike. But the SEC isn't alone in its efforts to protect investors. There are a number of nonprofits, think tanks, and associations that focus on investor protection issues, including the Consumer Federation of America, a research, advocacy, education, and service nonprofit that represents more than 250 consumer organizations. We're going to talk about some investor protection policy priorities with the CFA's Director of Investor Protection, Micah Hoffman, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. You know, we've had a couple interesting weeks coming right off the back of SEC Speaks, where you know, I enjoyed hearing from the new commissioner, UADA, and hearing from the director of enforcement, but it's, you know, it's time to get back to our regular programming. And I always love it when we have folks on from some of these different organizations or think tanks in DC that are really kind of moving the needle from a policy perspective in areas that we really care about here on the Insecurities Podcast. So I'm excited to have Micah on the show today. Micah's an old friend and we've, we finally are dragging him on the show. He was, That's right. He was it, it, behind the scenes on a, an episode we did with Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw about I guess it was about a year ago now, maybe a little bit more. But so it's going to be going to be good to chat with Micah about some investor protection issues. We're going to touch on ESG. We're going to talk about complex products, which is one of my favorite things to talk about. I know your eyes glaze over, kind of like mine do with some of the accounting stuff, Chris. But That's we're gonna right. Get you through it. We're going to learn a lot. But anyway, let's go ahead and get into it. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Micah, and then we will pass the mic. Micah Hoffman is the Director of Investor Protection at the Consumer Federation of America, or CFA, a nonprofit association of more than 250 national, state, and local pro-consumer organizations. In that role, Micah leads CFA's investor protection work through conducting research and engaging in advocacy on investor protection issues, focusing primarily on the regulation of investment advisors, investment companies, and broker-dealers, particularly as they relate to the provision of retail investment products and services. He is also focused on restoring an appropriate balance between public and private securities markets in order to promote investor protection, market integrity, and efficiency. Kurt, as you mentioned, prior to rejoining CFA, Micah served as counsel to SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw, where he focused on investment management issues, examinations of investment advisors, investment companies, broker-dealers, and regulatory implementation of regulation best interest. I can see you smiling, Kurt. Previously, Micah served as CFA's Financial Services Council for nearly seven years. Micah also worked at Public Citizen on a broad range of banking and tax issues and started his career as a prosecutor for the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. Quite a background, Micah. We are so glad to have you here. Welcome to Insecurities. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Mike, it's great to have you. We want to go ahead and get into it. So let's sort of start with a little bit of your background. We've mentioned a couple of times now that you spent some time in Commissioner Crenshaw's office. You were there for about a year and a half. Just curious, you know, now that you've 
gone through the revolving door and come back out here into the wild. You know, in your view, what were some of the, the most significant rulemakings or policy announcements or guidance or, or even enforcement actions that came up during your time in the commissioner's office? Well, two things come to mind. The first was revisions to the investment advisor advertising and solicitation rules, which occurred in late 2020. Changes to those rules were long overdue. The advertising rule was about 60 years old and reflected mid-20th century advertising practices focused on newspaper, TV, and radio. So given the staleness of the rule over the years, the commission staff had issued a collection of no-action letters and other guidance addressing the application of the advertising rule. And this had resulted in advisors having to navigate a complex regulatory maze to determine whether their advertisements ran afoul of the rule. So a modernization was due. The final rule merged the advertising and solicitation rules into a unified marketing rule and modernized the definition of advertisement to reflect changes in technology, modes of communication, and investor preferences. And it coupled that change of a broad new definition of advertisement with principles-based prohibitions. So the final rule is more likely to remain evergreen in the face of evolving communications and advertising practices. It also addressed the increasing use of performance advertising. That said, the rule was far from perfect, and I was disappointed to see some of the changes to hypothetical performance advertising in particular. As the name suggests, hypothetical performance does not reflect actual investments managed or actual performance achieved. While it can be useful for certain investors who understand the risks and limitations associated with these advertisements, it can also pose a heightened risk of misleading investors because uh, these can be readily optimized through hindsight. So recognizing these risks, the proposal would have placed what I thought were some common sense conditions on the use of hypothetical performance advertisements. And those conditions were eliminated through carve-outs in the final rule. So, for example, now all one-on-one communications with prospective or current investors in private funds are allowed. And I'm afraid that this will leave many investors, particularly retail investors, vulnerable to being misled by performance advertisements. So that was a bit of a long answer for my first example. (laughs) So I'll keep the second one short. Um, It was when then-acting Chair Lee put out her request for public input on climate change disclosures. Mm. Her request really got the ball rolling on the issue and the rulemaking and elicited a rich commentary on the issues, which clearly helped to inform the issuer climate-related disclosure proposal. I must confess, I had no involvement in the formulation of acting Chair Lee's request, but I thought it was pretty visionary and productive. I, I, I really thought this was going to be a reg BI answer. Chris, I'm just so disappointed. Great job, Micah. You avoided the pitfall of, of Kurt's beloved regulation. We'll get there. I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll come up somehow as it does almost every episode, Kurt. And Micah, that's great to kind of reflect on a lot of the accomplishments or, or at least the discussion that came out of your time at the commission. And, and you have stepped away and we'll talk into some detail, you know, as the episode goes on to some of the more focused topics, especially like we've, we've talked about a couple times here at ESG. But what else are you watching for from the commission now? We've had a couple of new commissioners, you know, sworn in, and, and some of the posture has has changed with some of the speeches. What are your, what are your antennas up for when it comes to the SEC today? Yeah, so as you know, the SEC's regulatory agenda is robust. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. First, the commission has proposed a lot of rules in the last two years, and at some point, it's going to begin to finalize those rules. So I'm I'm eager to see when that happens and the changes they make going from proposed to final. Relatedly, it's it's likely that litigation will ensue on at least some of those rules, so I'm interested to see how that plays out. There, there are also quite a few rules on the SEC's regulatory agenda that have not been proposed, and I'm interested to see when the Commission proposes those rules and, and what they look like. And a few of the rules that I'm eagerly awaiting are public versus private markets related, so specifically Reg D, Form D, accredited investor definition improvements, as well as rulemaking regarding shareholder of record, human capital management, 
and fund fee disclosure and reform rulemakings. So here it is, Reg BI. On the enforcement side, I'm hoping for much more robust enforcement of Reg BI. One case has been brought so far, and we hope that's just the beginning, because in my view, strong enforcement has the greatest potential to put meat on the bones of what is a very principles-based standard. And I think that could help flesh out what the rule permits and prohibits in practice. I also believe that strong enforcement has the greatest potential to provide real teeth to the rule and meaningful protections to retail investors. So in my view, the goal should be to first make clear that the best interest standard is a substantially stronger standard than the FINRA suitability rule that it replaced, to ensure that firms aren't permitted to encourage and reward bad advice, And finally, to ensure that the rule's requirement to consider costs and reasonably available alternatives is not merely a box-checking exercise. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, now I know how Kurt got you to jump on the on the podcast today, Micah. The alignment there is uh, is pretty suspect, maybe. I, I'm just I'm going to throw out the outline for the rest of this episode. I just want to unpack. <laughs> We're just going to do. <laughs> just go right into it. <laughs> all in. All in. <laughs> All right, so we've talked a little bit about the commission, both when you were there, Micah, and and how you view it now. Let's get into to where you sit today with the CFA. Uh, tell us a little bit about the organization and, and the mission and, and what you focus on. Yeah, so as you said, CFA is a nonprofit association of more than 250 consumer groups that was founded in 1968 to advance the consumer interest through research, advocacy, and education. For over 50 years, CFA has been at the forefront of ensuring that our marketplace is fair, just, and safe. CFA has a very broad portfolio of issues, and I hope I get all of them. And they include financial services, banking, credit, investor protection, which is where I focus, privacy, food safety, product safety, telecom, um, energy efficiency, housing, insurance, and saving. And CFA's nonprofit members range from large organizations such as Consumer Reports and AARP to small state and local advocacy groups, as well as unions, co-ops, and public power companies. That's interesting. We won't go back and double check against the list of things that CFA does, but <laughs> even if you you missed one, that's an impressive an impressive list. A lot a lot to talk about. At the at the holiday hop, happy hours for sure, you know as we've mentioned, you are you are now the director of investor protection at the CFA. You actually filled a seat that was vacated by the CFA's former director of investor protection, Barbara Roper. Barb has of course joined Chair Gensler's staff as a senior advisor, focusing on issues relating to investor protection. She is also, I mean, those listening to the podcast probably know, but she's a well-known voice and a very well-respected thought leader and advocate in the investor protection space. So, I mean, kind of big big shoes to fill, Micah. How's how's it going over there? How are you settling in? I was really excited to return to CFA. CFA whose mission and work I have deep pride in and passion for. Uh, I look forward to continuing Barb's legacy at CFA as the nation's leader on investor protection issues, but, but as you say, it's big shoes to fill. I'm particularly looking forward to bringing to the role what I learned from Barb and my experience at the SEC. And I think it's going well so far. Uh, it feels very natural to be back, to collaborate with my colleagues, to review proposed rulemakings, to advocate before Congress, and to interact with the media. And I have been joined by a terrific colleague, Dylan Bruce, with whom I work on investor protection issues. And I think we're going to be a very strong and formidable force. That's great to hear. Micah, let's get into the details as well as we talk about investor protection. That can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. What are the programmatic priorities of, of the Director of Investment Protection at CFA? Well, I'll mention three that are always top of mind. Um, first, investment advice standards of conduct, ensuring all investors have access to high-quality advice that is not tainted by conflicts of interest, regardless of the accounts they have or the products they buy. That certainly includes implementation and enforcement of Reg BI, but it also includes ensuring that the Investment Advisors Act fiduciary duty is meaningful 
and not interpreted and enforced as little more than a do not defraud standard, which is unfortunately the case currently. It also means ensuring that the Department of Labor closes loopholes in its fiduciary role for retirement investment advice to ensure that any advice that's given, no matter how sporadic, uh, is covered advice. And currently, advice has to be provided on a, quote, regular basis to meet the definition of fiduciary investment advice, which means that advice to roll over, for example, out of a retirement plan, which can be one of the most important and consequential financial decisions for an investor where an advisor has conflicts that are likely to be particularly acute given their interest in capturing assets, that is often not covered. So that's my first top of mind issue. Second is restoring an appropriate balance between public and private markets. Commissioner Lee spoke on this issue in detail in her episode, so I won't repeat her. It's a great listen, by the way, and I recommend it to your listeners if they haven't. Um, But I will say that for decades, Congress and the SEC have encouraged the excessive growth of private securities markets at the expense of the health and vitality of our public securities markets. And this has resulted in less information for investors and less accountability for corporate wrongdoing. I mentioned a few minutes ago the Reg D, Form D, and Accredited Investor Definition Improvements and the shareholder of record are on the regulatory agenda, and we hope the Commission moves forward with them without delay. And third, we provide public education on products sold to retail investors that may not be in their interests, including because they have high costs, suboptimal features, such as inordinate risks or illiquidity that may not be desired or compensated for, or because they may be sold subject to conflicts of interest. So some of those include certain annuities, non-traded REITs and BDCs, to name a few. While there are seemingly limitless ways investors can be taken advantage of nowadays, investors also have access to very high-quality, inexpensive, fully diversified, and tax-efficient portfolios using ETFs or mutual funds. So we try to steer them toward those investments without endorsing any particular company or product while steering them away from products unlikely to serve them well. I mean, it's good to hear those sort of top line priorities. I think I think what we'd like to do, Micah, is just kind of come down a level and talk about a couple other things that I know you're you're focusing on in particular, that CFA is focusing on in particular and see what you're thinking about from a from a policy perspective or an advocacy perspective there. And, you know, I think one of the biggest talking points at, you know, at any conference or on any kind of podcast where you're thinking about securities is ESG. We heard about it a lot at SEC Speaks. There's tons of client alerts pouring out all the time talking about all things ESG. You know, we've talked about it a couple of times here on the podcast, but for those tuning in today, of course, we're, we're referring to environmental and environmental, social and governments. That's the ESG. And there are a ton of new products and offerings in the capital markets, in the security space that are designed to give investors or purportedly designed to give investors exposure to different ESG criteria, or maybe the E, the S, or the G, depending. But the growth in this area has just been explosive in in recent years. The amount of assets under management seems to be growing exponentially, you know, year over year, maybe even quarter over quarter. And at the same time that there seems to be this great interest in ESG-oriented investing products, there's a lot of debate going on from a policy perspective about what should be the role of the SEC or perhaps other, other regulators you know, there have been a couple of rulemakings that kind of touch on this area that have come out of the SEC, uh, may, maybe more to come. But before we kind of get into some of the, I guess, some of the specifics of the policies, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, what is the problem that the SEC is even trying to solve? Yeah, I think that you put your finger on it, Kurt, that there's been an explosive growth in ESG-related products. And The umbrella term ESG is very broad and undefined. And to a certain extent, that's a good thing because there are a range of preferences among investors and approaches taken by asset managers to reflect different ESG-oriented objectives and expectations. And so as a result, we've seen 
the ESG asset management market become incredibly diverse with different funds and advisors approaching ESG, uh, investing in seemingly myriad ways. However, the lack of definitions and consistency also raises the risk that funds and advisors might use the ESG moniker to attract assets without conforming their practices to meet investors' preferences, objectives, and expectations. And that's the problem of greenwashing, which refers to the practice of misleadingly labeling practices or products as green or sustainable without actually making real changes to make them so. And recent research suggests that greenwashing is occurring with some prevalence in the fund market. Another concern is it may not be clear how funds or advisors are investing according to ESG principles, because not only do different funds and advisors approach ESG in different ways, they also approach their disclosure in different ways. While some disclosures are clear, many others are vague and lacking sufficient detail about how asset managers approach ESG investing, and this can make it difficult for investors to find decision-useful information, if it exists at all, and to understand, compare, and differentiate between different offerings in order to identify the offerings that represent the best match for them. So we reviewed some ESG fund prospectuses, and we found some of them to be lacking clarity and detail about how funds incorporate ESG factors into their investing processes. These prospectuses provided vague aspirational disclosures which would not enable an investor to understand how the fund incorporates ESG into its investing process or be able to compare that process with other funds. Yeah, and that sort of is a perfect segue into the first of the SEC's rules that we want to talk about. We're going to talk about two that either sort of directly touch on ESG or I think the, the greatest impact may be in that, in that space. I think you, you hit on it with the phrase decision useful information. It, it's a phrase that we hear folks talk about when they're thinking about what ought to be disclosed, whether we're thinking about an investment company or even a public company, frankly, what is, what decision useful information is available about those companies that, that investors can look to if what they really want is to put their dollars behind something that's going to give them exposure to an E, an S, or a G that, that's sort of doing what it says it does, that, that's you know, something that they actually care about. And so one of, the, one of the SEC's rules would actually require investment companies and investment advisors to provide some additional specific disclosures about how they are incorporating ESG considerations into their investing practices or portfolios. The CFA, I know, has voiced strong support for this proposal, but why don't you tell us a little bit about what the rule would require? Yeah, so the proposal is designed to ensure that investors have more meaningful information that enables them to make more informed investment decisions. And specifically, the proposal requires more detailed information about ESG practices in fund registration statements, fund annual reports, and advisor brochures. So first, the proposal would require funds that consider ESG factors to provide more detailed information about the fund's implementation of ESG factors in the fund's principal investment strategies of its prospectus. And the level of detail required by this enhanced disclosure would depend on the extent to which a fund considers ESG factors in its investment process. So funds that incorporate ESG factors more extensively in their investment process would be required to provide more detailed ESG-related information. And that gets back to your, you know, your, your suggestion that decision-useful information is really what's supposed to guide this. Um, so toward these ends, the proposal would require different degrees and types of disclosure across two main types of ESG funds. So first, ESG integration funds, which are funds that consider ESG factors alongside other non-ESG factors, but the ESG factors are not dispositive, would provide more limited disclosures relative to ESG-focused funds, which are funds in which ESG is a significant or main consideration in selecting investments or in their engagement strategy with the companies in which they invest. 
Impact funds would be a type of ESG-focused fund with a stated goal of pursuing a specific impact. And these funds would have to provide additional disclosure to clarify the impact of the fund that it's seeking to achieve, as well as to allow investors to evaluate the progress in achieving that impact. In addition, the proposal would require certain ESG-focused funds to provide additional ESG-related information in their annual reports. So specifically, impact funds would be required to discuss the fund's progress on achieving its ESG-related impacts in both qualitative and qualitative terms. Funds for which proxy voting is a significant means of implementing their ESG strategy would be required to disclose certain information regarding how the fund voted proxies related to portfolio securities. And the proposal would also require environmentally focused funds to disclose the aggregate greenhouse gas emissions of the portfolio. And then finally, the proposal would require registered investment advisors that consider ESG factors as part of their advisory businesses to include ESG-related disclosures in their form ADV brochures that largely parallel the information that funds would provide. And they would also be required to provide information about how their ESG practices affect the advisory relationship. It seems like the rule itself is a good, we'll say, first attempt or first major attempt at, at dealing with how investors are viewing ESG information. But as I can imagine, Mike, I have not read all of the comment letters or pulled the entire market, but there may be some differing opinions on this proposal. Talk to us a little bit about why there might be pushback around implementing this proposal as a, as a final rule. You're not wrong. As expected, there <laughs> is pushback, as there typically is. Some commenters argued that the current disclosure framework already supports effective disclosure, but in a more principles-based, less prescriptive manner. And along these lines, they argue that the prescriptive requirements of the proposal would impose costly burdens on funds without appreciable benefits to fund investors, and then funds would pass those costs on to investors. My response is, I've seen prospectus disclosures, and they don't provide the kind of detail that investors need to make informed decisions. So more specific requirements would be helpful in clarifying what is required. The commission was aware of the costs associated with this proposal, but found costs are outweighed by the benefits to investors. And I think it's also important to note that the proposal only applies to funds that choose to be ESG funds. For funds that don't, any costs are likely to be minimal if non-existent. Excellent. I think we've covered a lot on ESG, and we want to be sure that we get to many topics, Micah, that you deal with. So we'll we'll start our discussion of, of another rule from the SEC's focus. The SEC has proposed a rule that would amend or update the Funds Names Rule under the Investment Company Act. To cover a broader set of fund naming conventions, apply the rule to instances where funds' portfolios change and they are no longer accurately reflected by the fund's names, and address the growing use of ESG or similar terminology in fund names. A too long don't read version of this discussion is the name must reflect what the fund actually does. And you spoke a little bit about that, Micah, in terms of greenwashing. Don't call it an ESG fund if it's not an ESG fund or focuses on only one of those acronym letters along the way. So the CFA supports this proposal, Micah. Talk to us about why. Yeah, well, I think a little background is, is helpful because many retail investors rely on fund names to help them decide whether to invest in a fund. Fund names are often the first piece of information about a fund that investors receive. And in some cases, the fund name may be the primary or only piece of information the investor considers. And as a result, a fund's name can have a substantial influence on an investor's purchasing decision. Funds clearly understand uh, how important fund names can be in advertising to investors and that fund names can influence investor decisions. And that's why funds are very careful to choose names that are appealing to investors and likely to attract assets. For example, recent research on the use of ESG or similar terminology in fund names found that greening a fund name is beneficial for fund flows. So, Given these incentives for funds to adopt names that maximize their potential attraction, this creates the risk that funds may use names that are deceptive and misleading to investors' detriment. And to the extent that investors purchase funds based on their names and the funds' names don't match the way the funds invest, this can result in investor harm if those funds 
don't meet the investor's needs, goals, or expectations, or expose the investor to unintended or misunderstood risks. So the commission promulgated the names rule in 2001 to address the risk of misleading names, but unfortunately, there are significant gaps and loopholes in the rule that don't ensure that funds invest in a manner that is consistent with their names in all circumstances. And some of these gaps and loopholes have existed since the names rule was originally promulgated, and others have developed over time. So this rule proposal would more effectively require that funds invest in a way that accurately reflects their names and would make fund names more consistent with investors' reasonable expectations. And we believe these proposed rule changes are needed to protect the many investors that reasonably rely on the accuracy and reliability of fund names when making investment decisions and throughout the duration of their investments. And while the proposal does not address all of our concerns with the existing rule, it represents a significant improvement over the status quo, and that's why we support it. So, look, to me, this rule seems kind of like a no-brainer. I mean, if I go in, if I log into my broker online and I am looking at you know, an ETF with emerging markets in the name or, or small cap in the name, I, I think I have a pretty good idea what that fund is investing in or what, you know, what its portfolio ought to look like. Uh, I should say I, you know, still should go in and read the prospectus and understand what the fund actually does, right? But just looking at the name, if it says emerging markets, I, I should have a sense, right? That said, opinions are divided on on this rule as well, or the amendments to the to the names rule. So can you tell us, like, where are the fault lines here? Some commenters argue that the proposed amendments represent a drastic expansion of the 80% investment policy requirement to cover any names suggesting that a fund focuses on investments that have or whose issuers have particular quote-unquote characteristics, which they say is a nebulous term that is not defined in the proposed amendments nor in the release. According to these commenters, this would introduce new interpretive issues along with substantial and unnecessary complexity, burden, and cost without commensurate benefits. And again, they would pass those costs on to investors. Commenters also raise concerns with the fact that the commission currently is considering two other fund disclosure proposals, the ESG for funds advisors rulemaking that we just spoke about, and the one that revamps the annual and semi-annual shareholder reports. Commenters argue that either or both of these proposals should be used as a vehicle for educating investors on how best to contextualize a fund's name, and that these proposed amendments risk overemphasizing the value of a fund's name, and funds may have an incentive to provide too much detail in a fund's name so as to comply with the rule, and that won't be appealing to investors. I think these commenters overstate the extent to which interpretive issues will be a problem. I think it's important to note that the names rule doesn't require a fund to choose a particular name. It applies only when a particular fund chooses a particular name. So ostensibly, if they choose a name, they think the fund and its underlying securities exhibit those characteristics. If they don't, perhaps they shouldn't be choosing the name to begin with. And the rule doesn't dictate what characteristics underlying security should have. So, for example, if you call yourself a value fund, you can define whatever value metric you think works the best, but then you'd need 80% of your securities to meet that metric. And I think that that's a reasonable approach. All right, we want to get back away from specific rules and maybe talk a little bit about the rulemaking philosophy of, of the SEC as it stands today, Mike. We spoke a little bit about your views on, on, on where the commission sits today. But, you know, Kurt, you and I were down at the SEC Speaks conference through PLI a couple of weeks ago now, and, and the new SEC commissioner, Mark Ueda, discussed his rulemaking philosophy. He talked about plotting rulemaking proposals on a chart that essentially has that four quadrants are represented between effectiveness and costs. Uh, you can listen to our recap last episode on, on where we think that uh, many of the rules may fall in that those four quadrants. But Commissioner Ueda is much more focused on rules that are super effective and not overly costly. Uh, and disclosure rules are often met with criticism in that regard because they are seen as minimally effective. Disclosures already might take too long. Investors don't read the disclosures. 
bunch of rules are just kind of piling on top of that. And there can be an imposition of unreasonable compliance costs when you need auditors like me to show up and make sure that those rules are being followed. In short, many of the rules we have around disclosure would fail this new UADA test. Recognizing, Micah, that you haven't worked on the 10th floor with Commissioner UADA, how do you think that fund disclosures and fund names rules stack up under that rulemaking philosophy? Well, I think the commission did consider the costs and benefits as it is required to do under the Administrative Procedure Act when proposing these rules. And it will add to that analysis and make modifications based on the comments it receives to ensure the rule serves its intended purpose while limiting any unnecessary costs, assuming the commission finalizes these rules. Ultimately, I think the commission will find that the costs of compliance are justified and outweighed by the benefits to investors and market integrity. Uh, Reasonable minds can differ on that conclusion, and perhaps Commissioner Ueda has adopted the contrary view on these rulemakings. I'd be interested to know your your view a little bit more broadly about about Commissioner Ueda's perspective. I mean, I I hear you on the fact that these particular rules we're talking about today have already undergone some kind of cost analysis as they are required to do under under the APA. Um, But I'm wondering what you think about the sentiment more more broadly. You know, I, I think hearing certain commissioners complain about, you know, the, the cost versus the benefits maybe isn't a new thing. I, I don't know. I mean, do you do you think that these remarks, which look, they got a lot of play. People really listened to this. A lot of people were talking about it. People wrote about it. But do you think it's going to move the needle at all in terms of what's happening on the 10th floor? Or are we still just looking at a bunch of three twos for the foreseeable future under Chair Gensler? Well, I do think it's useful to understand Commissioner Ueda's perspective and understand how he approaches rulemaking, but I'm not sure it will ultimately impact vote counts. Having been at the commission working for a commissioner in the minority while Jay Clayton was chair and then working for a commissioner in the majority when Gary Gensler was chair, and having been on the outside as an advocate when the commission was taking deregulatory and regulatory actions... I found that when people disagree with commission policy, they often criticize the action for having a lack of adequate justification, including lack of economic analysis, or for the cost of regulatory action outweighing the benefits, for rushing the process, or for not adequately considering the comments of those who oppose the actions. So ultimately, I think it's a matter of perspective and based on the facts and circumstances of a particular rule. That all makes sense to me, but it's helpful to have your perspective because You've been there recently, and and having been in the minority and the majority, I think it's helpful to get that perspective as well. So I appreciate you sharing your thoughts. I, I think what we'd like to do next is actually step away from the SEC because, of course, CFA knows, and, and we've talked about in the podcast before, the SEC isn't the only game in town when it comes to investor protection. Our friends at FINRA out in Rockville certainly play in that space as well. You can go back. We've had Jessica Hopper on. We've had Chris Kelly on to talk a little bit about FINRA's enforcement philosophy. But of course, they have a rulemaking, a rulemaking mandate as well for registered firms at FINRA. FINRA recently released a regulatory notice 22-08, which reminds registered broker dealers of their regulatory obligations when they recommend investments in or investment strategies involving complex products or options. At the heart of the regulatory notice are FINRA's concerns that many complex products are inherently risky and that investors often, or maybe just sometimes, trade complex products without really understanding some of their their characteristics or some of those inherent risks, at least from FINRA's perspective. So we want to talk a little bit about complex products and brokers recommending those products or strategies. But first, I think we need to set a baseline for purposes of this conversation. Anyway, Micah, can you tell us what do, what do we mean by complex products? So there's no formal definition of what constitutes a complex product. However, FINRA has said it's intended to implicate products whose essential characteristics and risks would make it likely difficult for retail investors to fully understand them. And I can provide some further thought that 
I think it would be unreasonable to expect anyone other than highly sophisticated and experienced investors to fully understand products' essential characteristics and risks, particularly for products that possess novel, intricate, and complicated features, and for products that perform in ways that are not intuitive. And for me, these would include products with nonlinear payoff structures, such as options, products with leverage and inverse features, products linked to market volatility, and structured products, to name a few. It sounds to me like complexity is in the eye of the beholder, Micah, and I'm sure that there's many products that Kurt would not find so complex that I, unfortunately, might think are a little bit too complex for me, but we can have that discussion another time. So complexity you know, is, is might be a little bit of a moving target, but when it comes back to this regulatory notice, what are the broker-dealer obligations when we're dealing with these complex products? Yeah, so when a broker-dealer recommends trading in complex products, they are subject to Reg BI. And to comply with Reg BI, a firm and broker need to comply with the four obligations of BI, the care obligation, the disclosure obligation, the conflicts of interest obligation, and the compliance obligation. Uh, Reg BI's adopting release makes clear that the care obligation is especially important when broker-dealers recommend securities and investment strategies that are complex or risky. The release further makes clear that the level of reasonable diligence that is required will rise with the complexity and risks associated with a security or strategy. And in addition, the release states that broker-dealers that recommend complex or costly products should first consider whether less complex or less costly products could achieve the same objectives for the retail customer. And the release suggests that firms offering complex products engage in heightened supervision of these product sales. So, Micah, as these obligations are being required by broker-dealers in recommending those, those complex products, are there specific examples that you that are in your mind or that you consider in the market that really highlight some of the issues here? So two case studies provide evidence that many retail investors, and these are, these are self-directed retail investors, do not understand complex products and may be misusing them and exposing themselves to an inordinate amount of risk. So the first is with regard to options trading. As you know, there's been an explosion in retail investors' options trading in recent years, partly due to the introduction of trading apps with sleek interfaces and gamification features, also known as digital engagement practices that make trading feel simple, fun, and potentially addictive. And recent academic evidence by the MIT Sloan School and Stanford Business School professors suggest retail investors in aggregate lose money on options and make trading decisions that don't appear to be rational. And I've spent some time on YouTube, TikTok, and Reddit. And based on what investors are saying, it's pretty clear to me that many of them don't understand how these products work. The second is with regard to leverage and inverse ETFs. Evidence suggests that many investors are not using leveraged ETFs consistent with their stated performance objective, and some of these investors may be actively misusing them. Specifically, leveraged and inverse ETFs typically are designed to achieve their stated performance objective on a daily basis, and performance of these ETFs over a period longer than one day can differ significantly from their stated daily objective performance objective. But evidence suggests that many investors are holding these products longer than a day, which may suggest investors are investing in these ETFs with the expectation that leveraged ETFs may meet their stated daily performance objective over the long term as well. And again, having spent time on YouTube, TikTok, and Reddit, and having seen what investors are saying about how they're using these products, it's pretty clear to me that many of them don't understand how these products work. And while they may have gotten lucky when the market was going up, they're probably losing a lot of money now that the market has been volatile and then going down. And that's really unfortunate. So just at the beginning of the answer there, Micah, you hit on a really important concept. And I know you kind of used some inflection to, to maybe note it for the listeners, but I want to call it out. And it's this, this idea of recommending, right? What is a, what is a recommendation? And I think you know, the world has perhaps changed a little bit. It used to be that, you know, most, you know, particularly retail investors would go talk to someone and they would get advice or get a recommendation from a person who is saying, 
based on what you've told me, I think this is a good product for you, or I think this is a good strategy for you. The markets have innovated in ways that make that, I think, less frequent than it once was. And, you know, FINRA is now asking for feedback on whether the current regulatory framework, which was, which was really crafted with that world in mind, is, is still appropriate as individuals are increasingly using some of these some of these newer platforms or tools, things like online brokerages or some of the investing applications that are available out there. And Finner wants to know if, if the rules are appropriately tailored to address any of the concerns, specific concerns relating to the sale of complex products on those platforms. So I guess, I mean, one, correct me if I've sort of missed the mark here in terms of how things are evolving, but also what is CFA's thinking on this new paradigm? No, I think that you got it all right. So CFA's position is that the current regulatory framework is not appropriately tailored to address current concerns raised by complex products and options, particularly for self-directed investment. As you said correctly, Kurt, markets have experienced significant changes in recent years, both with regard to the increased diversity of investment products in the marketplace and the new ways in which investment products are sold to retail investors. And so, whereas just a few years ago, many complex products and strategies were only available to sophisticated institutional investors, now new products are increasingly being manufactured and made available directly to retail investors who can get access to these through a click of a mouse on their personal computer or a swipe of a finger on an app on their tablet without even the most minimal of review by a financial professional about the wisdom of that investment decision. Now, I want to be clear, we are not against product innovation or the use of complex products per se. In fact, new and innovative products have the potential to provide real benefits to investors by allowing them to attain and manage their exposure to different assets and strategies, which may improve their investing outcomes. But it's also critical to recognize that while providing access to new and innovative products can be beneficial to investors who fully understand such products' features and risks, it can also increase the likelihood that investors who don't fully understand these products' features and risks will misuse them and be harmed as a result. And unfortunately, there's abundant evidence that many retail investors are misusing complex products and options based on misunderstandings of these products' essential characteristics and risks and are suffering significant harm as a result. And, you know, I, I want to make clear, I don't think the fault is theirs. It would simply be unreasonable to expect anyone other than really highly sophisticated experts to fully understand many of these products' essential characteristics and risks. I know we're talking about complex products in particular, and, and maybe starting to think a little bit about self-directed platforms. But I think we're kind of hitting on a broader theme, which is, I, I don't want to say there's a there's a tension, but maybe there's a colliding between, you know, sort of innovation and, and policy. And we're trying to figure that out across a number of different planes here. And so I guess I wonder you know what? What is the solution? Let's let's stick with with the complex products and the self directed platform. Like it, with this example, do you think we need sort of specific rules for for this potential problem, or is there a different way to think about it? I think we do. Recognizing the substantial risks for retail investors of investing in complex products and options through self directed platforms, and the current lack of regulatory safeguards to to ensure that. Only those who understand these products' essential characteristics and risks use them. We urged FINRA to update the framework for complex products and options to better protect retail investors by first updating existing options account approval rules to ensure that broker-dealers approve customers for options trading only if options trading is appropriate for their customers. We also urged FINRA to apply that appropriateness standard more broadly to other complex products that are purchased through self-directed platforms. And in doing so, we urged FINRA to continue to construe the term complex product flexibly to avoid a static definition that may not address the evolution of financial products and technology. Uh, and we agree that this definition should capture products whose essential characteristics and risks would like it, likely make it difficult for retail investors to fully understand those products. 
And finally, we urged FINRA to vigorously enforce these these options in complex products account approval rules to ensure firms comply with their regulatory options, not just at account opening, but throughout an investor's journey. If it becomes apparent that trading in these products is no longer appropriate for the investor. We think the goal of this project should be to ensure that investors who understand a complex product's essential characteristics and risk continue to have access to such a product, while investors who don't understand a complex product's essential characteristics and risks don't continue to have unfettered access to such a product, given the increased potential for these investors to suffer great financial and personal harm from the use of such a product. And as key gatekeepers in the market, we think it's entirely appropriate for broker-dealers to have heightened obligations to ensure that their customers who do not understand complex products and options do not use them. Well, Micah, it's been almost a, an hour of great discussion of everything that you focus on as the Director of Investor Protection at the Consumer Federation of America. These conversations I'm sure we could be having on a monthly basis just with you as these rules come together, uh, as the Commission and FINRA take take their stances on many of these kind of thorny ideas uh, going forward. So I think, I don't know if we have this placed already, Kurt, but I'm reserving the right to call you back, Micah, for future discussion on, on some of the things we talked about today as those developments uh, come together. Well, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun and I would love to be back. Excellent. And if you'd like to hear more about Micah's work at the Consumer Federation of America, you can check him out at consumerfed.org. Obviously, CFA covers a lot of issues. Micah's work focuses only on that of investor protection. So be sure to, to check out those resources if you have time. Thanks for joining us, Micah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Micah Hoffman of the Consumer Federation of America. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at Ekimoff CPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.